read an interview you gave a couple of years ago, and you said that uh, you wanted to change the world, which is great, and you hear it a lot. But I, I, I believe it when I hear it from you rather than when I hear it from somebody developing a an app or a, you know Tinder for healthcare. Um, but <laughs> let, let's talk about the mission behind Ohm Cardiovascular and the people you brought on to accomplish that mission. Why do you believe you're changing the world? So, Brian, I, um, I'm going to start by pointing out my team so you guys can raise your hand. Raise your hands. Thanks. I brought eight people tonight. Brian gave us free tickets. Um, so every person on the team is dedicated to the eradication of needless death due to coronary artery disease. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there are 1.1 million people who die from coronary disease every single year. It can be electrical or plumbing. We're dealing with the plumbing right now. Um, 100% um, of our meetings and of everything that we do is dedicated to that purpose. We celebrate um, when patients' lives are saved, no matter if it's through our clinical study or if it's through our now commercial device in Germany. And uh, I'm so happy to have the most talented people, um, I think, in the area working for me. So you're an accidental entrepreneur. 13 years ago, you were the mother of two very young children. They're both here tonight, which is great. They're not so young anymore. And uh, you were working at uh, 3M on a computerized death scope at the time. When we go back there, what were your ambitions at the time? And was being the CEO of a medical device company anywhere on your bucket list? Sure. So I had um, I was actually at the University of Minnesota working on my master's degree. And as you mentioned, I had um, young children. Um, and the first part of your question is, what were my goals? Yeah, what, I mean, what, what, was, what, what did you think your career would be at that point? Was it a, in, the re, in the lab or? Sure. So my primary goal was to make sure that I had um, well-adjusted children that would be happy, really. Um, my second goal was to finish my, my degree and then probably go into academia. Um, can I just tell the story? Just go straight into it, Brian. Would that be okay? Sure. Okay. Just, it's easier for me to monologue, probably. Um, so 13 years ago, I was, as Brian mentioned, working on my PhD, which was to develop a, um, a computerized stethoscope. Clinicians are using the abil- losing the ability to auscultate, which is use a stethoscope to pick out um, pathology, generally heart, heart valve pathology. Um, I, along the way, so I'm an engineer and not an MD, and so I needed to learn how to use a stethoscope. And I uh, collected data from my husband, who was six foot one, about 180 pounds, 41 years old at the time, looked absolutely normal, swam three days a week. And um, I collected data from him, learning how to auscultate. And nine months after I started my project, he died from a sudden cardiac event. My daughter was four. She's 17 now. My son was uh, seven weeks old at the time. And at that point, I knew that I was going to do something to stop this terrible disease and sudden, car- sudden cardiac arrest. I mean, you, you're saying you knew at that moment? I knew right then, okay. exactly. Now, he was, by all intents and purposes, a very healthy man. He said, <laughs> 6'1", 180, I wish I was that. Um, and you used him as a test case for your stethoscope. What? When you were you doing it, you saw him as a health his heartbeat as a healthy heartbeat. Um, and in fact, when I mean, did either of you have any 
clue about coronary artery blockage? I mean, did you did you know anything about sudden heart attack? I mean, what what was your knowledge about about the the condition? Sure. Not his condition, but just in general. What was your thoughts on that? Sure. So I think all of us know someone who's had a heart attack, right? And um, yes. it's one in three Americans suffer from from heart disease. And so I think just like everybody in this audience, maybe the people here actually more so because you're in med tech, um, have heard about this. It's just experiencing it personally uh, made it so much more real. Right? And But in terms of the sudden heart attack, this, this one that people don't survive from, I mean, had you heard about it in the news? I mean, was it something that you were looking at in terms of an indication for this, or, or was that not on the radar? No, it wasn't even on the radar. Yeah. And your husband, he also, you had him go to a cardiologist, in fact, as well. I did. So when I was pregnant with my son, I started having premonitions that he was going to die. And so my, uh, our general practitioner during a well baby visit, um, I talked to her about these premonitions. And, and also, he had borderline cholesterol. And I asked her if, he, if she would prescribe a treadmill stress test, and she did. And it came back normal. And actually, the um, technician said that he was you know, kind of a star, uh, a star patient. Right. And so, um, right, so, so he had the treadmill stress test. It was absolutely normal. And so, you know, nine months later, he had a heart attack. Complete surprise. Right. And it turned out that his heart was far more damaged than, than anyone anticipated, right? I mean, there was, you said there was 90% blockage in three, uh, three areas of the heart? Sure. So I, I'll just kind of frame this for you even more. I, um, uh, after my husband died, I had to make the decision on whether or not I was going to get a job or finish my PhD. And so I decided I was just going to suck it up and finish my PhD. And after a period of about three months of grieving, I went in to meet with my faculty advisor, who was a cardiologist working in the echo lab. And and I I know that he was expecting this, okay, but we talked about the project and how to get reengaged. And I pulled out the autopsy report, and I said, tell me what happened. And he took his hand, just like this, guys, and looked down. And explained to me that he had died from a vulnerable plaque that ruptured in his LAD, his widowmaker artery, and um, had severe blockage, 90 to 99%, in the rest of his major coronary vessels. Uh, at the end of this discussion, with his hand like this, I asked him, if you had known that it was there, could you have done anything to fix it? And he said yes. And I knew right then that the work I was doing on my stethoscope the data I had collected from my husband, and the alignment of having all this information together was by the hand of God that I was supposed to do something about it. And so that's what I've been doing. I'm set off to do it. And it was at that moment where you, in your sort of sleepless nights, started digging into the data, looking for this sign, right? This, yeah. this sound. And, and what Did you know what sound you were looking for at that time or...? or? Absolutely not. So the field of data mining was pretty new then. I um, changed my minor in my PhD program to statistics and started to employ um, a variety of statistical techniques, so vectorization, matrix algebra, and things that probably a lot of you are, have heard before, armor methods. And um, you know, I twisted and turned this data every way that I could. And I remember the night um, where I found the signature 
the, the frequency signature associated with coronary disease. The house was dark, the kids were in bed, and I had my computer screen on. I was working. And I did a frequency plot, and I saw the frequencies in uh, the 50 to 100 hertz region, and I heard a voice that said, there it is. And um, I knew I had it then, at least a portion of it, Brian. And then what I did was I dug into the clinical literature. I'm a scientist, and I discovered that in 1967, a guy named Doc, D-O-C-K, described, he had a case study where he described a, um, a, a guy, 49-year-old guy, who had a moderate to severe stenosis in his widowmaker artery and um, consequent uh, moderate to severe murmur found at his second left and third left intercostal space on the parasternal border. And I knew that we had it. And from there, so I always say that um, I found it by accident, but it's always been there. And so I found the single case study, but then I also found a number of other case studies by other clinicians that are in peer-reviewed journals describing the same phenomena. Right. Interestingly, there are, uh, there's a group from Rutgers and Dartmouth who did a lot of engineering work on the same phenomena in the 80s and early 90s. They, they reported really terrific results. They, they really never translated it into a usable clinical device. It wasn't until I wrote uh, an abstract for circulation describing the use of a stethoscope. That's where we started, right? That's our humble beginnings. We are no longer a stethoscope, okay? Um, but um, the field is really moving forward now. And I'm thinking back to that moment where the doctor puts his head on his hands, and I'm thinking about what that must feel like for the family. And you've talked, you must have talked to hundreds of people now who have experienced the same feeling that you've felt. I mean, emotionally, you've already been kicked as hard as you can get, but then when you find out you could have prevented that, is that insult to injury? I mean, what, does that, I mean where does that put you in, in, in your... Sure. So I think you think it's really unfair. It shouldn't be that way. And your life is turned upside down. I don't know a single widow or widower who would look at it and say, yeah, I expected something like this to happen to me. It's a complete shock. Yeah. So when you're there and you're data mining all night, I mean, in in your... What's what's motivating you at that on those moments? I mean, is it is it is it really societal? I have to stop this. Are you coping with your own grief at that time? I mean, is there something that you're trying to achieve beyond? I need to change the world. Okay. So I've been interviewed a number of times, and Brian asked me this question before, and I said that's the first time anyone's ever asked me that question. And so I look at that little girl there and that boy right there. And I was trying to make sense of their father's death. And have you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. So we take this discovery, and, and you're, you're essentially, to dumb it down for me, uh, you're learning, you, you, and you now understand the sound of the blood flow mm-hmm. through. And, and a healthy flow just sounds like water rushing. Mm-hmm. You said a, an unhealthy flow sounds like water flowing over rocks. Yes. Okay. So you have that. You've found that. Now, at, at that moment, are you saying, I'm going to build a company? Or are you saying, this is, you know, I've, I've found this algorithm or I found this, this something. I'm just going to sell it to a company or I'm going to give it to somebody. I mean, where 
you, you, you have that answer that you were looking for. Now what happens? Sure. So I should just start by saying I, um, I worked for General Motors for 12 years. I was a fourth-generation GM employee. I was a manufacturing engineer, and I thought I would do that my whole life. Went into academia and, um, you know, started inventing things. So I have in- inventions and um, uh, hip replacements, fetal monitoring, stroke, atrial fibrillation. And um, I, I, I didn't even know how to say the word entrepreneur and kind of make fun of myself. I was talking to my daughter, and I said, it's entrepreneur. I mean, it wasn't until I actually became one that I, that I learned how to say it. Um, so um, what happened was I discovered this frequency and a way to process it and disclosed it to the University of Minnesota where I was doing a postdoc. And um, they, the tech transfer office has a website, right? And they put all their inventions on it and they look for entrepreneurs to, to take the device forward and build companies. And so they patented it, put it out on the website, and nobody could see the vision, right? Because it was math, okay? Right. And um, it sat there for a few years and I did a postdoc out at Stanford with the folks at Biodesign. And they, I had no idea. This was honestly um, an accident because I thought the program was focused on something other than translational science. But I thought, they're not doing anything. I'm going to ask them to give me the patents back because the university had the rights. And they did. Free and clear. They gave, gave it back. And I, um, I said, well, I have it. <laughs> Better do something now. And so I kind of um, didn't do much for a long time, a few years. I mean, I was talking to my husband, um, who is sitting there and is very supportive and has been incredible throughout this venture. But um, we used to make models in the basement of our house in Farmington. And he was a, um, like a, a professional jet skier or something. And so he was really good with decals. And so we would put decals on these little, you know, Crayola uh, uh, ceramic models and stuff. So that's, you know, it was kind of like walking around it, not really deliberate. And it wasn't until I won a qualifying therapeutic delivery project grant. Do any of you remember this? And there are lots of people in here that have probably gotten that grant. But um, the Obama administration put out a call for grants in July of, I think, 2010. It was a very simple application. I filled it out, and within about three months, the government gave us $250,000. Now I was working, I was leading a think tank at the university, and I thought, well, the only way to spend this money responsibly is to leave the university. And um, my turning point, and this is going to be very amusing to you probably, was for this grant I had to set up a business account. So we had uh, an LLC for a long time, which probably most of you know is really nice. It's a pass-through entity, but... um, I um, went to the bank, and I met with a small business banker, and we set up this account, and the guy said to me, do you want a credit card and checks? And I said, why would I need a credit card and checks, right? (laughs) And um, I got the credit card and the checks in the mail, and all of a sudden, it was a real business to me. There was something about that whole, and uh, my husband acted as the um, accountant and chief financial officer before my... (laughs) So even when you're starting this, you don't think it's a, no. a business. No. Again, what's pushing you at this moment? I mean, you just did you just you just couldn't stand to see that technology sitting there doing nothing. So I think or that answer doing nothing. Yeah. So so I think at that point, um, you know, I had 
it, it still wasn't deliberate, Brian, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I had this chunk of money. I sort of had a vision about how we should spend it. I knew I wanted to get this product on the market, and I just started moving forward. And um, I, I, of course, I live and breathe this mission. I mean, this is everything mm-hmm. to me, and I think it's the purpose and meaning of my life at this point. And if I die with this product on the market, I'll die, you know, having done something. And, and you do, in fact, have it on the market in Germany. We do. We are selling. So. <laughs> That's great. We love money. <laughs> so, so here you are. You're an accidental entrepreneur. And you're raising money now. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and did you go and you went out and raised money from venture capitalists? Did you? Uh, know? No, no, no way. So I, um, as I mentioned before, Manny was pretty instrumental in um, my starting the company, and he gave me a lot of really great advice. And when I was out at Stanford, they always suggested the the venture capital model. Right, you develop a pitch deck, and the pitch deck has clinical need, and you go into reimbursement, regulatory. And um, Manny said, you know. You can just use a PPM. And he gave me his PPM from Kips Bay and said, read it. And so I looked it over. And uh, just for those of you who don't know, that's a private placement memo. And it's a way to raise money from private individuals. And so I uh, unbelievably have some incredible um, high network um, individuals who have financed me to this point. I raised about $10.3 million using that method. And I've had a lot of people say, wow, you've gotten really far on that amount of money. And you can really ask anybody on my staff about spending money. They fill out purchase orders, and they do this. They throw them on my desk and run away, right? right. Nervous about my son, and that's the honest-to-God truth. You can ask any of them. So $10.3 million from high net worth individuals, yes. no yeah. venture capitalists? No. What, I mean, is it? what do you think makes them write the check? Right. What have they told you makes them write the check? Is it? The, the impact they say they can have, or are they just drawn to this mission and this story? So I think that um, for the first month that any of the people um, that are on my team work for me, they're still pretty enamored with the story. And then the reality of what we're trying to do kind of hits them, and it's a lot of hard work, okay? Same thing with the high net worth individuals. They don't give you money because they're in love with the story, okay? Um, they They fund this company and this mission because one-third of all Americans suffer from heart disease. We all know somebody that has had a heart attack, someone that's died from it or lives with it currently. Their friends suffer from this. And so they see that we can detect obstructive coronary disease in about 20 minutes, and that's taking the data to receiving the report back. We, we do it quickly. We do it non-invasively. I mean, it's a, a, actually a relaxing test. It takes only eight minutes for us to collect the, the data. The patient's laying on the back in supine position. Right. No pharmaceuticals. It's, um, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, no, it's great. I, 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 when I went and interviewed Maria, I, I asked her if they could do it for me so that I could have some peace of mind, and it was, uh, it was very quick and easy, and it was terrific. And uh, I promise I haven't been binging on bacon ever since. So yeah. so I've been trying to be really good. But, it, I mean, the peace of mind is incredible. I mean, because, yeah. um, I mean, this is a terrifying condition. I mean, I, I think back when Tim Russert uh, passed away from his sudden, car, sudden heart attack, and one of the things that, we, that the newspapers wrote was that, you know, it's just a reminder that a visit to the doctor is not a bulletproof vest. And, and, and that even... In the in the best of cardiology, that still there's still this level of medicine that's a guess, and and 
you know, I wonder if that, as a scientist to you, you know, that must still seem very shallow. I mean, that, that we're still at a point of a guess. I would agree. So I'm an engineer by training. Um, and it, it, this always surprises me. Um, the treadmill stress test, which is really the first test that they will prescribe to determine if you have uh, heart disease, is only 67% sensitive, which means that 33% of the time they miss uh, disease in a patient who's sick. So to let that sink in, 33% of the time. On the other side of it, it has a sensitivity about 72%, which means 28% of the time they tell a normal person that they're diseased. So you say, okay, that's a treadmill. Maybe it's not so accurate. But an echocardiogram, a stress echo, which is a myocardial perfusion test, it's 80-80. And so there really are no perfect um, tests for um, um, assessing heart condition. Right. And even another thing I, I read in, a, in, a, in a, an incident like he had, you know, there's only a 5% survival rate in a witnessed heart attack. So, I mean, there's nothing you can do once it starts. Right. And, and so the people that you're working with, the cardiologists that you're working with, do they believe, um, do they believe in what you're doing or, the, or when you're talking to them for the first time or, it's, or do you find that there's resistance at all to your device? <laughs> So they, um, they usually say it's too good to be true. Um, our uh, FDA pivotal study is a non-inferiority study against nuclear stress test. Nuclear stress test is a $5,000 study. It requires 6 millisieverts of, um, excuse me, 25 millisieverts of radiation. It's a three- to five-hour test, and we're saying we're not inferior to them. And, I mean, it's basically show me the money, right? They want to see the data, and that is our challenge is the data. Mm-hmm. We have a 1,000-patient pivotal study. We're 957 patients into it. We're a hair away from finishing that study. So that, that's a lot of data, but they want even more data. So we have another 1,000-patient post-market study going on in Europe. We have a 100-patient study, um, scientific-based study going on here in in St. Paul, but then also in Washington, Washington, D.C. So we are all about the clinical proof. We want to show people that it works because it does seem unbelievable. So it's a $5,000 test. Well, how much does does this test cost? The cadence test. Yep. So cadence is $100. So that's a, that's pretty dramatic savings right there. Yep. And I'm wondering, now that you've been at this for a while, you founded the company, you said 2009, so we're 09, 10. Mm-hmm. So we're five years in. I mean, what what do you would say, uh, first of all, is the thing that you're, you're proudest about with this device that you've developed and the company you've built? So this will seem shocking, but I'm um, proud of myself for getting FDA agreement on our pivotal study. That was hard, and it required a lot of patience and time. And do you feel like you've made some mistakes along the way? Would you share any of them with the group? <laughs> Where do I start? Um, <laughs> oh, they always say that. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll say one more thing I'm proud of. We, you know, we launched in an outbuilding on my property. We are uh, right now in the rear of an old kitchen concept store between McDonald's and an auto zone. That's right. Um, it's 
in the rear, right? <laughs> and um, we never bought furniture, really good furniture. Um, we, I didn't hire a lot of people up front. I mean, we're really lean. I do have to say, we are moving to the big leagues. We yeah. are moving into a new building on Monday, but I'm very proud of the fact that we, we didn't spend money in, um, in, in uh, ways other than in clinical or in engineering. But go ahead. And it's a, no, no, it's a big, you're moving into a much bigger spot, right? 3,800 square feet? Yes, so? it's lovely. So there's, it's not going to have that same, because I remember going to your office and the front door, there was like, I couldn't find the front door, and it looked like uh, there was furniture <laughs> blocking the front door. There are. Uh, so we have two garage doors instead of one, yeah. and they open. Yeah. Are you worried at all about leaving that sort of this, you know, uh, scrappy, startup-y kind of place and get into the big leagues? You know, maybe you'll have to, you know, become a real big league CEO or anything. <laughs> anything worry you, worry you about that? We have two garage doors and a bar, a small barbecue out back. I think we're a little, in a way, away from that. I mean, as you change, as you grow this company, are you gonna are you gonna change at all? You think? Personally, personally change as a as a, as a CEO, as a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I, it's pretty tiring to do a job like this, and so I'm learning more and more how to let other people take the work on and um, make the jobs theirs instead of me constantly being involved in everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I try to hire the best people that I can. And um, uh, so I just have to trust that everything's going to be okay. Right. And you're going to be scaling up, or you're going to be hiring as well? Yes. So you're going to um, go from about how big to how big? So I started at um, started with myself, and then I added that young man. Um, he was my second employee. He was an intern for a really long time, and that he worked hard. <laughs> okay, he was like used to book travel for me in the old days, and now he's a project manager, and absolutely magnificent in that role. So it was two for a couple years, and now we're at ten full time, and I've got about five consultants. And over the years, I've had. Um, lots of people that have worked with me on these projects and um, it's only because of those people that we are where we are so the goal is to ramp up of course but to do it in a way that makes sense and you're on the market in Germany Mm -hmm. and that was that was recent right you got the CE mark there we did okay and any surprises about commercialization that you were Yes. So um, I have a wonderful board of directors, and um, they suggested that we get our CE mark because our FDA clinical clinical trial was taking years. And so they felt that it would be important for the company um, to keep the momentum. And so um, I, I really believe that most people do not realize how hard it is to launch in um, uh, the EU. I mean, it's an eight-hour trip there, and we're there all of the time. I have a very lean staff, and language is an issue, even though everybody says that the Europeans speak English. I have a guy who speaks German on my staff, and um, it really makes a difference, and it's hard. It's hard, yeah. and we're not using distributors at this point. You're selling direct. And then we are selling direct. You anticipate, I mean, you can never anticipate the FDA, but... We're going to be on the market in the U.S. at some point. In 2017, yeah. And we'll be changing lives then as well. Mm. well. Thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Brian. This is a great mission. Because as you thank told you. me, God doesn't want us to die, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story.